Do you ever helplessly feel caught up in the rat race and wonder how you can ever get off of that never-ending, fast-paced treadmill? If so, this conversation is a must-listen. My guest, Macy Miller, built her family's tiny home in 2011. Her now iconic tiny house has been featured in Time and Dwell magazine, and she's inspired countless of other tiny home enthusiasts all around the world. In this episode, we dive deep into tiny home living, roughly 200 square feet, while she's navigating that with herself, her husband, her two children, two cats, and a dog. Her family's journey into homeschooling and unschooling, which is an honest conversation about a countercultural movement. Amazing insights on navigating technology use with children and the importance of decentralization in empowering community, and so much more. I personally learned so much from this episode and left the conversation feeling super motivated. I'm already planning to do a part two with her to dive deeper into her and her family's inspiring lifestyle. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And without further ado, an uninterrupted conversation with my guest, Macy Miller. It's really nice to be able to sit down and connect. I've heard through our mutual friend, Ashley, about the amazing things you're doing and your family are doing. And since we've had the time to chat, I was just blown away and excited. And I've been holding on to that excitement ever since. <laughs> well, thanks for uh, letting me be a part of the conversation. I like having interesting conversations with people doing interesting things. So the sound thought. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's something about that because when we can hear somebody else's journey, it can inspire our own. And totally. sometimes people might have that little seed inside of them about yeah. a, a potential dream and maybe it just stays in that. And sometimes the right yeah. um, conversation could just pull it all together. Absolutely. Total believer in that. So for our listeners, I'd love for you to just paint a little picture about what your current lifestyle looks like with you and your fans. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think of it as pretty plain Jane, honestly, but I built a tiny house 10 years ago. It's 200 square feet. I was a single lady back then. <laughs> Met my partner. We've since had some kids. The whole plan was to live in the tiny house for two years and get a feel for it, see what's possible, kind of push some technologies so I can get some hands-on experience. My background is in architecture, so I wanted, you know, instead of knowing about radiant floor heat, I wanted to have experience with radiant floor heat. And so mm -hmm. my plan was to build this little house, incorporate a few different technologies I wanted to learn more about, and springboard from that. I didn't know where it was going. It was uh, after the 2008 recession, and architecture took a nosedive. I was laid off, eventually hired back. But everything seemed unstable at that point. I had also gone through a divorce with the whole complications there. And so it pointed me towards this path of uh, transition, which I solved with a building and building a 200 square foot house to live in to kind of get me through this period and figure out, you know, what I wanted to do in the future, whether I was going to change my profession or what. But in the meantime, I could learn and grow and have more to offer clients in the future. And so I built this house and it's been 10 years. I just love it. I love the lifestyle it's enabled for us. Since we've been able to do this, I've essentially retired. I kind of do my own thing and, and take jobs that I want because I don't have very many expenses. I've been able to save money. And so my purchases are done in cash now. And 
I can raise my kids. I stay home with them and, you know, I promise them the first five years of their lives. They get me one-on-one because I feel like that's a really crucial time period for a kiddo. Now they're seven and eight and they still get me one-on-one. It's <laughs> turned out like that too. <laughs> but uh, it's just kind of been a path that allows me to step back and be really intentional about how we choose to go forward with our life. In 2016, I seeing the kids were three and four or five, and we took off the road trip. But we felt like the town we were in was outgrowing us. It was not offering the same childhood to my kids that it offered to me. It's where I grew up. It's where my partner grew up. And so we built a camper and we took off around the country for 13 months. We toured national parks and wow. with the hidden goal of, is there a better home base for us? Um, and so everywhere we went, we're like, does this feel like home? Does this feel like home? You know, and, and what we found out was like the whole world felt like home. There was just such beautiful things about every place in this country. And so we got back home and we were like, well, I don't know. <laughs> and on our, our, like we finished our trip and we ended up in North Idaho. We're from South Idaho. And we visited my partner's mother. And we were driving home from there and we drove through Moscow, Idaho and Bolsmas. Like we were literally just driving and we looked at each other and we're like, this checks every box. Like it's beautiful. It's a small college town. There's all kinds of opportunities here. And we literally just looked at each other and said, this is it. This is our home. And then we moved. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it was, it was awesome. Like it, it was one of those moments, you know, people tell you this will happen. That you may or may not ever experience, but it totally happened for us. We're like, this is it. We're putting roots. And so we moved the tiny house and we moved it 300 miles north. And I bought six acres. We're setting it up. It's off grid. We've been living here now for three years, completely off grid. We collect our own rainwater. We generate our own power. We built our own roads on the property. Like all of it's just, you know. Um, but it's the adventure of it that we like. And so it just, we found this place and it just had every opportunity and more that we could imagine. And I don't know how we left into it because North Idaho is a very expensive part of the country right now, but we got a good deal on the place. <laughs> it's just lucky. Everything just kind of conspired to work out for us. And it seems to continue doing that every day. So now we we're just doing the thing. We're living our life where I home educate our children and. Doing the thing. Fun. That's an incredible journey, Macy. And I imagine it must have felt pretty liberating back, you know, as you were feeling the crunch with your job and losing these different employment opportunities, moving through a divorce, really shedding a lot of things and maybe navigating some different aspects about financial insecurity to be able to build your own place that you could operate from. I'm, I'm sure that gave you this. I mean, there was definitely, it was, it was liberating, but it was terrifying too. Like none of these were choices anyone I've known had ever made before. And still to this day, I don't know anyone that homeschools before me. And now like I'm in the world and I'm reaching out and I'm finding a tribe, you know, to help me through that. But that's not a part of my upbringing. It's anything like that was frowned upon in my family. And so a lot of these choices have felt ostracizing terrifying because like nobody quite understands it. And there's a lot of concern that maybe we're making a dumb decision, you know? And I think initially that used to, um, I don't know, hurt my feelings a little bit. Like it didn't feel like I was supported 
until I changed the mindset that these people who are questioning my every move, they're concerned about me. They love me, right. you know, but it doesn't feel like that at the moment. It feels like you're criticizing me or like you're doubting mm. me. Um, and so I think at least initially it was more terrifying than liberating, but it made sense. It made logical sense on paper. And so I went forward anyways with it. Um, but figure even if I just fail horrifically, I'll learn something. <laughs> and that's, that's the goal. Like we're at that. I feel like that's why we're here in the world is to learn things. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny culturally how we've had that fear of failure and almost this, that fixed mindset where it's like, oh, I'm not good at something or I could take a risk and the floor could drop out from under me. But I think that's the sweet spot too. Yeah. Well, we're herd animals. That makes sense. I think if we step back logically and how we're treating the earth as a species, is that the right answer? You know, and if we can step back from that and choose differently... But it's scary and it's daunting to step off that normal path, like safety in numbers and bird uh, deviating. But in my experience, like you can build a tribe. And oh my gosh, I had to explain what a tiny house was to every single person that came upon. And now you can't find a person that doesn't know what a tiny house is. And that's how changes get created too, I think, is being bold enough to speak out loud about your own journey, even if you might fail horrifically. <laughs> and then taking those criticisms as learning opportunities. Like my mom would question my ability to make these choices. And if I considered all the things, and I'd listen to her. And then I'd consider those things she was worried about. And if I could justify it still, we're good. But those are all tools to kind of help you weave your path, I think. Mm, totally. And that's where the innovators are. They're in that space of doing the things that are often criticized, that are often yeah. out. It is no measure of well-being to be well-adapted to a sick society. And so yeah, yeah. I, I, lo- I love that's a great, that's that is great cool. saying. Yeah. Yeah. I love it when somebody's willing to take a leap and take a risk and do something differently, because I think so- there is some almost an existential discomfort in, within each of us that we know, you know, we're mm-hmm. not living in alignment with the earth. We're not living in right mm-hmm. relationship with mother earth or with one another within our communities. It tends to Mm -hmm. be very individualistic and self-focused. And I don't think people are that way. I think it's the story that we've inherited. And so Mm -hmm. it takes a lot of courage to start to shift that story. And I wonder, how did you do that? Like as you were feeling challenged and not supported when you probably needed to feel that support as you were taking this Mm -hmm. leap, how did you start to overcome that? It was just uncomfortable whichever way I went. And so it was like, which uncomfortable do you want? Do you want the uncomfortable path that has you working every day, all day? You know, I work in architecture and people think that's a hop knock sort of a job. It's not. But people work 80 hours a week to do strip malls and push paper. And like, it's, it's a, it takes a lot from you and it doesn't necessarily pay you back. I'm sure I could have tried to target that ladder a little bit differently. But that was an uncomfortable path for me too. And so do I want the uncomfortable path that takes everything from me that I'm just barely getting by on this thing? And then I kind of realized through my divorce, I don't even like that stuff. I bought a 2,500 square foot house and literally had a white picket fence. And I hated every day of it. It was just so much. It was not me in any way. My family was proud of me. I was doing well, you know, from the outside, but I hated it internally. So do you want that path that's not you? Or do you want to try to find something that might be? And so I, I think I was just became okay with the discomfort of going forward and 
However, the cards lie, the cards lie. And fortunately for me, when I followed my intuition, stuff started aligning and now lead a life that I'm, I don't know, some, sometimes I feel bad when I tell others, like, I'm so happy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because that's not the norm and it feels like bragging. But I feel like I'm living a life that is authentically mine. I made the choices I made and I'm happy with them. So at the end of one road, there's hopefully good, but there was a whole lot of discomfort in the middle part. And it was what kind of discomfort do I want to handle? It's a good perspective to take. And I think sometimes that's what it needs to get us to be able to move. It's that discomfort that pushes us, that will get us out of that comfort zone to make the shift because comfort can be a real enemy of innovation or good can be an enemy of great. It's like, oh, things are okay. You know, things are good, but really what kind of life do we want to live on this short little span that we have on this planet? Like, let's celebrate it. Let's make it a party. (laughs) Well, and once you start making choices based on your own intuition, I feel like the world just conspires to reward you along the way. One of the first things um, like dating became hard when I started building a tidy house uh, because not a lot of guys are cool with me showing up how to use a power tool. They're masculating, you know, but like we would do that. And I had a lot of first dates that really just didn't go anywhere. But then I met James and James was like, this is really cool. And then he adds to my crazy ideas and together we just build molar. And so once I started having an opinion that deviated from that boring old path that everyone kind of gets pushed on in some way or another. I started finding the crew that helped support that, you know, and it's worked out really well because I stopped questioning myself. That was really what it was. If it's, if it wasn't working, this being honest and saying, this isn't working for me, this isn't my path and going the way, you know? I love that so much. And I've been meditating with that and leaning into that aspect as well, both as an educator and as a human trying to navigate and find my way in the world and hold space for others to be able to authentically step into their own. And I've let go of the idea of there being coincidences. I really yeah. think that there's this almost this beautiful intelligence to the universe. And all we really need to do is get quiet enough and still enough to listen and then have the courage to to bring that in. Yeah. As we step into that courage and the authenticity of who we are, we become magnetic and we start to attract the amazing things in our life. And all of a sudden you bring this community to you or your partner to you, Mm -hmm. all of the conditions that seem to apply. It's, it comes as we start to walk that path of our own heart. Absolutely. I totally believe that. I'm reading the book and I'm not very far into it. Have you read Big Magic? No. It's all about this idea that like creativity and ideas exist on their own and they are looking for a human conduit and you have to be mm. there and ready and willing. And it's a partnership. And if you lax on that, it'll go find somebody else. But there's these good ideas living in their own world alongside people all the time. If you could just slow down and be open to taking them, you can be a partner with this magic. And I'm listening to the audiobook. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. I just love it. I love that whole concept of just being open and ready and walking the steps you need to walk and then being willing to acknowledge these things once they come into your lives. Yeah, I love that so much. And I, I felt that a lot in the creative process, both like witnessing others and within myself. Like, I think 
artists and we all are artists. We are all creators. Mm -hmm. And there's a degree of rational understanding the parts, the pieces, whether you're playing an instrument, learning how to paint, mm -hmm. designing a building, anything that requires that rational brain mm -hmm. at first. But once we get these tools and the skills and the experience, it's almost about getting out of our own way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You can learn all the parts you need to, but the creativity comes when you start to let it flow. Mm, that's the big magic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that so much. Yeah. And it is this positive feedback loop and it's yeah. that, that cycle of building self-trust too. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, I did take a leap and I, that risk was really worth it. Even if I did fall flat on my face on this piece, <laughs> at the end, I can actually look back and say, wow, that's led me to this beautiful yep. place. And so then courage becomes contagious, both with the people around us and, and internally. Like we can mm -hmm. build that muscle of courage by taking a step. Okay. Yep. That, that one went all right. I landed on my feet. I'm still yep. good. Okay. Here's that's the next exactly one. what the tiny house did to lead me into homeschooling. You know, that mm -hmm. that was not in my realm, but I needed that experience almost to feel comfortable. So when you're dealing with your kids, there's <laughs> the whiplash. You might be ruining a person, <laughs> like <laughs> foundation of them. And that's a scary thought. And society has a lot of feelings about that as a whole and specifically about education, you know, mm -hmm. um, and whether or not I'm doing a disservice by going this way. I needed that that tiny house rebel experience to be the education rebel that we're taking on now. And just like the tiny house, when it stops working, when it stops being beneficial for all parties, we'll move on. We'll pick yeah. the next best thing. Being willing to do the thing and willing to step out of doing the thing when it's necessary too. I yeah. think that's an important part. I do too. I, I had a teacher when I was studying yoga in India who used to say to me, he would say, don't accept or reject anything I offer. Just see if it serves. And if it does, mm -hmm. take it on. And if it doesn't, let it go. And I think yeah. I've really, uh, that's really helped serve me a lot, be it in the idea form or in actually doing things. I tend to have an allergy to dogma. And so I really like yeah. the I, idea of being honest and having the ability to say, pick this up and take it with you. And mm -hmm. if that's now becoming too heavy or set it, down. set it down and carry on and move yeah. on the next thing. Yeah, absolutely. Were you into homeschooling? Like, did you plan when you had your children? Did you know that homeschooling would be the route? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was funny because I started feeling that way when my daughter was three. And three is now the age you're supposed to look at preschools. And I was like, I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready mm -hmm. to set her away for that time per day. And so we started working together on shapes and colors and letters. And I really liked it. I really, I felt like I learned so much about how my daughter learns by teaching her. And I feel like that's an important part of humanity. I think all of us are teachers, whether we admit it or not. It's a feedback loop. And you understand another person when you watch them learn. That is a sort of bonding. And it's not really important. Um, and so I did preschool. And then my son was one. My daughter was three. And then he started picking it up and they were bonding, learning together. And I got to watch that. And I felt like that was really important for our family unit. And now we're like, obviously she knows her like letters and colors and can read and everything. But now we're on a different loop. We're doing like emotional education, I feel like right now, where she's faced with a problem she doesn't know the answer to. And all I have to do is help her understand herself and help her work through 
how to work within her brain, like how to problem solve. I'm not teaching anything per se, but a method of learning. The world teaches her everything she needs to know. I'm teaching her how to learn. I love it. But at the same time, we're getting all kinds of family bonding. My partner steps in and he's, I always say he's the digital to my analog. So he does all the tech stuff. And man, like my son is seven and he's coding things. They set up security cameras on our whole property. They do stuff that I don't know how to do. And my seven-year-old is leaving it, you know, because his brain works that way. He's just like his dad. But it's beyond me. Like he's already learning things that I'm just like, that's not where my interests are. That's not where I run to. But teach me about it. Tell me what you know. And he'll explain it to me. And I feel like he learns so much by explaining it to me. And then I get steps forward. (laughs) But I'll do everything the things he's doing. But it's a family exercise and we love it. Like all of us get something from it and it changes over time what that is. Mm -hmm. But so far it's still working for us. So third and first grade is all they are right now. I do think eventually we'll put them in more classes. I mean, they have like art classes and karate classes where they do that stuff with other people because they're at the point that they need to start gathering those experiences with strangers too and how to engage over things. But the classes they're in are fun. Um, and eventually, hopefully they'll think math is fun or something and they'll be put in with peers and in, in those areas. But I will be a sad when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. I've had goosebumps listening to you speaking there about education. I've been an educator in the public system for the last six years before I stepped out. And I saw so much of the things you're talking about around emotional regulation and allowing them to be able to regulate themselves. That's what everybody felt that sense of internal empowerment and the ability to listen to that whisper in their own heart, their own intuitive knowing. And Could have you imagine what the world would look like? Like just unleash this yeah. world of potential that I can't even, I can't even fathom in my own head. Because when I see a child that's empowered, they're naturally curious, they're willing mm-hmm. to take risks, they're willing to communicate openly, they care about other people, they take responsibility for their actions. When a kid is empowered. Those are base level of human things as far as I'm concerned. But yeah. if you don't have the time. And a caring adult that's able to focus in on that, it gets skimmed over the top. And you learn certain things and other people are, some kids are really able to pick that up really well. The difference between my son and a daughter, I couldn't imagine how they could be more different of learners and teachers and doers. I feel like it's almost a cruel joke somebody played at me. (laughs) Everything that works really well for my daughter is like nothing to my son. But they're so good together and they bridge the gaps and it helps me learn how to teach them better when they can use their own language and teach each other. I can see what hits with Miles and what hits with Hazel. And so it's really, it's a group exercise, but oof, they're so different. (laughs) Like one is very analytical and one is very creative and they lean into those hard, you know, and uh, it's crazy. It's an adventure. I love it though. (laughs) That's so cool. And I, told myself and I landed on this when I was in education. It's like, my job is to nurture that sacred flame of curiosity that exists mm-hmm. in every child. And if I can do that and then surround them with the scaffolding and the skills that they need to be able to achieve their dreams and their visions, like our work is done. Yeah. 
I always say my only job is to put opportunities in front of them, see what's interesting to them and put those opportunities in front of them. That's where I'm just the polar of pieces and set it right in front of them. If they take it, they take it. And if they don't, they don't, you know, but it's Mm -hmm. their educational journey. It is theirs to pick. I make them follow reading standards and stuff, but that stuff is pretty simple. When a kid is going down the route, they kind of pick up all those skills. But I try to be aware, what does the state say is important at this age? And it's, I mean, it's well below where they're at right now for a seven-year-old and eight-year-old. Like they, I barely worry about that. I just want to make sure I'm pulling in all those pieces as we go. But (laughs) it happens. People have just this innate, curiosity about the world and given the opportunity they'll roll down it they'll steamroll down it it's fun to watch and i've had so in my little community that i built around like homeschoolers wild schoolers because i think what we do probably falls more into the unschooling category where it's child-led and there's not a lot of sit down and do this worksheet to it but i try to make sure those things are taken care of there's a lot of people who have gone to public school and they have, for lack of a better term, had their spirit broke a little bit. And there's this period of adjustment, getting back to their own curiosity. And the general rule is however many, however many years you spent in public school, it's one month per year to just do nothing. And then you'll start to find those things again. But a lot of the kids just, they hate learning because they didn't do it the way they showed them in school. And so they felt like a failure and that you've got to unlearn that before you can follow your own intuition and go on your own learning path. So, yeah, I don't know. I always find it so interesting how damaging school, like in the collective setting can be to some people. And some people do really well with it. I actually think my daughter would do pretty well in a public school setting. And she wants to try it. Our target is fifth grade. She'll try it. But I know it's not for my son at this point and in the foreseeable future. (laughs) I just don't think he would do well in there and he wouldn't be allowed to explore. Unfortunately, I think that's that way a lot for little boys in the beginning years. They can be ruined because they're, I don't know, they're vibrating. They're kinetic learners. And that's how they grow up. And there's no room for that in a classroom. And logically so you're in charge of 20 some odd people, you know, like they can't be vibrating around. So, but it's interesting. The educational journey is not everywhere I thought I would spend some time, but it is sure an interesting area. I can't no wait doubt. to see like what the rest of life brings. What am I going to find interesting next? <laughs> but you never really know. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. I remember having conversations with educators because I, I became like a positive behavior mentor at one point and then worked on community engaged learning. So helping them address and solve problems that they were passionate about in their own community. And when I was trying to work with the educators around so many, it's a common complaint in education, actually. It's like, this kid's not interested in learning. This kid doesn't care. And so all of a sudden we've labeled this child as disinterested or unable to learn or and a, a problem because yeah. and it leads to behavior. And that's so at least to overcome in their future. That's right. And it's like, well, that's that kid's problem. At what point do we look in the mirror and say, well, what kind of soil are we creating right, for these seeds to grow? Right. Because maybe our soil is nutrient deficient and maybe right. packing them in siloed subjects where we think they need this many 
hours of math and this many hours of English and this many hours of science. Like, where does that exist in life? Where does exactly. this compartmentalize? I mean, what adult would love to sit down and do that stuff too? You know, like, Screw that. <laughs> like, why are we expecting kids to sit and take it when we wouldn't even do it ourselves? That's right. You're just like, what, do you want them to have like a job they hate too and just get used to doing a job they hate all day long, yeah. every day? And mm-hmm. I don't think anybody wants that. But if no. you step back and look at the system and how it's working, that's what we're saying. And it was so. designed that way. It was designed to create good factory workers. And so it served its yeah. purpose for the story in which it was created. But now we're yeah. in a different world. We're in a world yeah. with complex overlapping issues and yeah. a time where we really need people to be connected to their hearts and navigate yeah. their way forward through all of these challenging internal and external worlds and healthcare and mental illness and environmental challenges and social challenges are greater than ever. And so we need this time that we can come back in and empower the individual so that they can yeah. connected in their hearts and move forward from that space. Right. Totally agree. Yeah. And how lucky, like, it's not lost on me that the path that we're taking as a family, it's inaccessible to a lot of people. That's right. And I don't know how to make that better other than, you know, like, I don't have like a company. I don't have a business. I don't do anything. Like I teach people how to build tiny houses if they want to learn that, but I don't market it. If they want to find that stuff, they can find me and figure that out. But I just try to live my life authentically and talk out loud about it, you know, mm-hmm. even though it's not mainstream and hope that the right person who's looking for an answer to whatever can get that inspiration some way. And then I'm all over helping to find a path. But that is the hard entry point. Overcoming the opinions of other people is the hard part about living life off grid and homeschooling my kids and living in a tiny house. I'm like, what's the, the hardest thing? Other people's opinions. That's the hardest thing to overcome. But once you do it, it's contagious. And you can build a network of people who you can help overcome that hard part. And then I think we'll be doing better. It's a slow process. And it, and if you get spammy about it, it's not cool. <laughs> I never try to like change anybody's mind about it, but I authentically love my life. And that should be a good selling point, you know? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I've been meditating on that for quite a while as well, where I think it's almost a immature place that we're at because I was there, you know, I started to discover stuff about environmental habits and lifestyle ways or practicing mindfulness or all of these things. And I almost, in my excitement and in my like, oh, this is so different than the way I was living. I need to share this with everybody. Yeah. was almost prophetic about it. And it's an immature expression, I think, because yeah. really change is, we're not going to change anybody. Change comes from in that yeah. internal spark and change comes from inspiration. And so yeah. it's not bureaucratic government dictates. It's not large laws. It's not us spamming, as you said, yep. spamming other people. That's not where we're going to initiate sustainable, lasting change. If we really want to make a difference here, the best thing that we can do, and as cliche as it is, clean up our own yep. front doors, do our work, do okay. our work and make our work and our life the inspiration and the message yep. that will carry the change that we want yep. to take forward. Absolutely. And that's why I say yes to opportunities like this. I always feel a little bit like I'm trying to sell something, but I'm not. 
I'm just trying to be a voice so that if the right person looking for the right spark, you know, they or not spark, but they have it in them and they need that little reinforcement to, to get them to fold the next page over. I want to be that for people. But if you force anyone into these choices, they're going to hate them. Just kind of like how when people get forced into the other choices, often they hate them. <laughs> yeah. So like at a point, it's a machine. You've got to slow down to be able to listen to your own t- intuition and go forward, though. And that's really hard right now when society is so noisy and it keeps you so busy. It's hard to slow down and hear those paths opening. Mm-hmm. But- and it seems like it's getting exponentially busier. I mean, it was around 2008, too, that social media came online. So now children, everybody is connected mm-hmm. at a global level. We're seeing information inundation and that's all the time but it is a tool it's a tool it's a tool and it can take us in either direction and it can lead us to paralysis where we're either we start wondering about how well other people's worlds are so much better than mine and that missing out kind of feeling Mm -hmm. to wanting to be on there and be a keyboard warrior or create these movements this way and it's like it's just a wonderful to our deduction. <laughs> it is. It is an a interesting expression of it. And it's very new. It's still such a yeah. new thing that we're going through. And I think it's interesting to note the rise in mental health issues with our young people as these things are coming on. And mm-hmm. really, it, we're at a time where we're starting to evaluate how do we want to use these technologies for good? How can we? Exactly. What, what if a social media platform had, that's a great idea. Let's go grab a coffee button on it. Yeah. Yeah. Some ways to, to engage and to connect and like for your homeschooling community or for these things, imagine somebody who's trying to jump into homeschooling and could hop onto social media and find a homeschooling network. That's brilliant. Absolutely. Like I'm in so many groups now that are local to me that I don't know if I'd have the stamina to keep doing it without those groups. I mean, Mm -hmm. they carry you when you start to doubt yourself. So it's a great tool if it's used as a tool, but it's not a I don't know. I think we're starting to see all those drawbacks of too much yeah. social media. And my whole philosophy is take what's beneficial from it and stop comparing the Joneses because there's a lot of inaccurate stuff on there, you know? <laughs> How do you navigate technology use with children? That's <laughs> different theory on this than my partner. It's weird. We have a different mindset. They can use screens. Like we're not a screen-free family. They can use YouTube monitored just because there's some stuff on there we don't want to see or don't want them to see yet like they'd only watch like minecraft videos and then they got screamy and then i could see their personas became screamy because they're watching videos and they're i imagine in their head they're kind of like this is how the rest of the world acts Mm. and so they got screamy in the house like and just talkative but not really saying anything you know and so we came up with a list together of certain YouTubers that they could watch those things from. The ones that we could hear they have value. I mean, no cursing, though cursing is it's just words to me. My partner feels differently, but they're six and seven and eight. They don't need to hear it. Oh, they get enough from yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're well trained there. But we try to be really intentional about what channels they can watch on YouTube. And we use it as a critical part of our homeschooling. You know, we're doing bug life cycles, you know, and there is some amazing videos that can teach that way better than I can. 
So my job is to be like, okay, here's the problem that we need to solve. This is what we're learning about this week. Let's go find some videos. And then we search it. And then that video makes us ask another question. So we search it. And again, I'm teaching them how to find information. And then we do like a journalism class. My my daughter really wants her own YouTube channel. We're not there yet, but she's got to learn about journalism and truth and media. And so we're digging into that side and she's enjoying it. I think they're at the age where it's online. It's true. So we're just unfolding that. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> and there's this really great book series. It's called Two Truths and a Lie. And we sit down and we read that every night. Like we pick a little story and each chapter has three stories. Two of them are true. They're all absurd. They're all like wild, like the earth is burning, you know, Godzilla's real. And they all sound improbable, but two of them are true. And they have to figure out which one's the lie. And they can use Alexa. They can search online, but they're fact checking. And I think that needs to start young in this day and age. They need to start doubting the information they're getting and verifying the information they're getting. Um, And so that's been like my favorite class to do with them because I try to trick them. And they're getting pretty savvy. <laughs> so, uh, but no, it's a part of our future. It's not something we're going to be like, no, you can't use it. I have track phones because my son likes to break things, not intentionally ever, but sometimes he breaks my phones. So I have a bunch of old broken track phones. So they have their own phones. They're not connected to internet or anything or to service. They're connected to internet at home and we can monitor where they're going and what they're doing. Because that's important too is safety online. There's a lot of tricky people, but we give them free reign monitored more than they think it is. Uh, So that's our method. Other people have different methods for good reasons because every kid is different and they use it differently. They have friends who are not allowed to play Minecraft. My son learned coding through Minecraft and that is one of his deep dives that he's going to, I don't think his job's invented yet. Whatever he's going to do from for a living or for his passion, he's going to make that up. And I'm so excited to see what it is because that kid can think that way like no one I've ever seen before. But safety is important and monitoring that as a parent. And I don't know how people do that when they don't see their kid all day, you know, when they're at school. I know that schools shut down a lot of websites like you can't watch YouTube at school. But there is so much to learn from YouTube if you use it as a tool. and. That's the tricky part, though. It's just tough to navigate. But I I really like that principle because it's a tough world to navigate, period. And so there's obviously infinite ways to go about that. But I always love, at the end of the day, being co-collaborator with your child or with your student or with people in that process. Because if we just tell somebody not to touch the stove, sometimes they might touch the stove. Then they'll be more conscious of that. Or you say, oh, we'll never do the, like, these drugs are just bad. Never, ever do that. I don't want to ever see you. And then all of a sudden we start creating these places where there are shadows or thing, conversations that get swept under the rug. And now there's no longer a place in relationship to be able to navigate these challenging conversations or these challenging situations around media use, right? Everything as a learning opportunity. Uh, And I don't want to take this like too dark, but (laughs) when I talk about, so we moved up to North Idaho. And the same weekend, we purchased our property. There's a neighbor up the hill that purchased his. He was a convicted child sex offender, and he was our next door neighbor. Not only that, he drove through our property daily to get to his property. So usually when I discuss this part, I put trigger warnings 
He's no longer with us. He got sentenced to prison again, and he opted to off himself instead of going. But that was our life for two years. When we moved up here, we had a registered child sex offender living next door and through our property on the daily. And I hated that. You know, I hated that I had to talk about those things when my kids were so little. And I feel like they have a natural mistrust in the world. And I think that they're always going to have that because they were so little and they had to have discussions about this is a tricky person. And he would invite them to his house and stuff. He like, we were always in eyesight. We were always around, never had the opportunity to do anything. But you would do it on the download and they knew and we prepared them with things they could say and things they could do to never be alone with him. And I hated that had to happen, but that is a learning opportunity. And I have to believe that was put in their lives for some reason. They needed to know about that at that point. But I don't hide things from them. You know, the dangers in the world are real and we need to know how to start to see them. If I never told him that, he they would have never known he was any which way because we protected them from it. But we didn't trust him and that he wouldn't try if he had the opportunity of our neighbors. So they needed to know about it so they could not get in a situation. Yeah. So I don't know. Not everything's good in the world, but all of it has no. a story to tell. It's part of our story. And I feel yeah. terrible because my kids are so little and they're so mistrusting of people. Like even and especially adults, anyone like they will default to this is probably a tricky person (laughs) because right at the start of the pandemic, the only person they ever interacted with was a tricky person and we were barely isolated and it stinks. That is their first experience up here in our new home because we're here for the long haul. And if, but I have to believe that happened for a reason for them. Yeah. 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 And that I'm sure that will shift and change as they grow and as they have We're hoping. Uh, other experiences <laughs> with that. I mean, like, obviously yeah. I received what they needed to be protected in that moment and to move forward. But I just come back to trust, right? You're creating yeah. an open channel, a relationship where your children can yeah. come to you and they could ask questions. They could be curious. I yep. find when we have the conversations that stay off the table, it creates a space for them to get curious on their own. It could create these challenging situations at times, right? Right, They're alone on their islands and they have to navigate it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And because of that situation, a good focus of our year this year is creating safe spaces. You know, the world's a little bit safer place. Idaho stayed locked down more than the rest of the country because nobody kind of took COVID seriously here. Our population is so low. It wasn't as big of a deal to people here as it was in more populated areas, but it's kind of opening back up and we're working on trusting people in relationships. And that's a big part of our discussions this year is safe people and healthy people and giving them the experiences of that. So like we're in a group of wild schoolers and there's like 15 kids and it's five parents. And these are all safe people. I know them. I know their background. I've Googled them. (laughs) And so it's kind of creating the space for those healthy relationships to form and they're going to learn it in their own way. But just me saying these are safe people, you know, I'm still never going to leave them alone with them or anything because they're not comfortable Mm -hmm. yet, but they're working it up. They have to have those experiences in order to feel 
like, oh, okay, this is a natural response. They're just yeah. kids. They don't have a lot of interaction with a lot of people. They're just seven and eight. Yeah. So that it's giving them the opportunity to have those connections where they can form their opinions. I hate that two years of their short little lives have been almost entirely isolated with a tricky person, you know, <laughs> but that's, a, that's the hand they got dealt and we deal with it. And yeah, we, we yeah. but you know, our society's often very untrusting of people around us. And I think mm -hmm. that, that can be a problem. We kind of lead absolutely foot that like, we don't really have societies that are rooted in trust. And so we create laws and we create situations that need to tell people how to behave and how to do these things. And, that, and, that, and then. Yes. Uh, yes. There's always this barrier of separation. And I think if we actually give people the benefit of the doubt more often than not, they'll rise to that. But that, that caveat being said, I think it's very important <laughs> also to have strong boundaries and a sense yep. of emotional intelligence and strong awareness. And so that seed that's planted could hold with them that they don't necessarily allow themselves to be taken advantage of too easily, yeah. but over time still build deeper trust with yeah. adult figures and others in their lives and realize, yeah, I'm sure, because yeah. you're clearly surrounded with a beautiful community and beautiful people. And yeah. those experiences will definitely be integrated too. Yeah. That's, that's the hope. But I mean, that's just life too. Yeah. You know? Like, we don't get to, to pick what happens around yeah. us. We get to pick how we respond to it. Yeah. And I that's, think that's, that's an important thing. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. So what's your toughest challenges with homeschooling? What do you find are some of your or unschooling? What are some of the biggest friction points or do you have much? I don't have any. I love it. I do. I really? seriously, I love it. My daughter does want to go to school. She's a, she's our social butterfly. We're finding out she's not actually, she's just more social than the rest of us. She's still <laughs> on the shy side, <laughs> but uh, she has this idea of what public school is like. And there's sending machines and you take a bus and you have friends that you could play with all day. And that's what she thinks. And I know those are not necessarily true especially the bus and the vending machines. That's not a part of her school here. But she has a need to experience it. And that's what I take mm -hmm. from it. And she's targeting in on it. She really wants to do it. And so what I need from her to feel comfortable doing that is to see her setting a boundary with people. Because right now she folds in so easy with friends. And it's really important to have that friendship her and so she'll do things she wouldn't do by herself like she's afraid of water a little bit and she went and played in a pond with her friends because she felt pressured to do that and i know that was past her boundary she fell into that peer pressure sort of yeah. and so i need to start seeing her hold her boundaries but we're thinking fifth grade she'll try i think she'll like it for about a week and then i think she'll hate it but the lesson is that we commit to something and she'll see it through I really don't think it's for her in the long run, but that's like the biggest strike we have is I want to go to public school. I'm like, why? Because I could buy a soda. <laughs> that's not a reason, <laughs> you know? Uh, but, right? But no, it's tough. Different personalities. It's just like the rest of life. You have four people, mom, dad, some daughter, that we all have four different personalities. Those blend well sometimes and sometimes they don't but he, those are learning opportunities too and we develop those relationships and the strong family ties personally i love it 
there's no drawbacks to me. Even the drawbacks, I can bright side into such great opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you ask the other people in the family, they might have different answers. I'm pretty sure James is 100% like, let's keep going. He doesn't want her to go to public school either. It just doesn't seem like a healthy environment. That's <laughs> such a weird yeah. thing to say about school. But she's in charge of her educational journey. I just need to see that she can be an individual too. Mm-hmm. And let the education run the show and not fall into things. I don't know. No pushback for me on any of it. Wow. Other people's opinions. But I think everybody's on board with homeschool. Like my parents were very close to it. I always, I grew up in a house where we heard about weird homeschoolers and they, that cousin's weird because they were homeschooled, you know? And as I've grown up, like all of those people I was like told were weird. I'm the coolest people. They have <laughs> the most developed worldview, I guess. And I really enjoy talking with them. But I think my folks particularly, they see whatever we don't visit, they still pop quiz my kids. Are you learning this? But then they know like way more about computers <laughs> than how to use their phones and how to use their computers. And I think they've come around that they're just fine with this path we're on. Yeah. But yeah. Other people's opinions are not why we homeschool anyways. Like the world's a changing place and I want my kids to be prepared for it. And mm. school is a great big ship that's hard to turn. And I think that everybody, especially after COVID, sees drawbacks of the system that's in place. But it's going to be a few more years before anyone's going to be able to steer that boat. Because it's just a process. Like it's such a big machine. It doesn't turn on a dime. I would argue it's probably going to be a lot more than a few more years. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. I've been seeing that. What do you think that's going to happen with our education system? Because it, I don't know that it's sustainable how it is for a few months. It hasn't years. been. It hasn't been sustainable yeah. for decades and decades. It's, and these conversations all the way back to John Dewey and, and others. Yeah. I mean, he, people have been writing about this for upwards of a century now. It, yeah. Just saying the kind of direction we've been going is not fit for the way that we're, we understand about behavioral and educational psychology and the development of a child for the changing world that we're in. The fact that 80% of the jobs in the future, they're not even created yet. And so we need skill sets rather than rote memorization, like Mm -hmm. all of these things, like it, it has to change, but bureaucracy is a really static force and so much of the money and the energy of that system goes into institutional maintenance. And so the vast majority of it really just the inertia of being stuck where we become fanatical about our measure of success has to be easy for the bureaucracy to measure. And so it's math scores and English scores, not like how well is this child flourishing and what's their emotional intelligence like, or how are they able to think critically about problems or do they communicate well with their peers? What do they do when they fail? These things are hard to capture. And I think it's going to take a lot more than a few years and a lot more flexibility for these systems to be able to get there. Because what I saw that we were doing is we were just making little tweaks when we were in the system. And what really has to happen is an entirely new paradigm. And we seem to be stuck in it a paradigm paralysis at the moment. And so we really got to shake that out entirely for us to actually see the kind of changes that I think will, will enliven our education system. What do you think will happen? Do you think that they'll find a way to systemize something that's healthier and more productive for 
Not productive. That's the wrong word. That's a word thing would want. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it's healthier and sustainable. Yeah. Like, how do you see education looking in 50 years? Yeah, and perspective has changed on that in, in different ways. I think the unschooling, the homeschooling, the private schooling, all of these things are really great because these places can create models that can show systems that work, healthy dynamics, because bureaucracy, be it education, healthcare, any kind of structures like that, typically say no before yeah. they, they, so we can propose innovative ideas and it's no, because we haven't done it that way. I'm less convinced that those will be the leaders of change and we might actually see proven methods of private systems or homeschooling systems that are working then continue to work and show that way forward. And I think those will be then adapted and integrated in as we move forward, as more and more hmm. social unrest is happening with the education system. And then from there too, there's amazing educators in the public education system. Yeah, I've seen time and time again, people get crushed by the weight of bureaucracy and you go in mm -hmm. there and you see how many boxes you need to check and all of these things. And so it's going to take courage from the people. And unfortunately, those who continue to rise up are often the rule followers. Yeah. The amount of times I got my wrist slapped while in the public education system for doing what I knew was best for the children in front of me was yeah. unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. It was a confronting experience in that. And so I guess I've, I've not lost hope in humanity or in these systemic changes at any way. In fact, I have deeper hope because I worked with the children and yeah. I actually published a book over the summer around an experiential learning framework that would even allow us to keep the aspects of curriculum. We don't need to disagree that English and math and these skills are important, but let's create an experiential learning framework that's focused around the interests and the experience of the child, what directly yeah. impacts them, their families' lives, the lives of their community, and hook them with the interest there and build projects together and scaffold these things so that they can learn to set goals for themselves and create outcomes, just check back in. And it's not the idea of achieving any particular thing, but it's the process. Yeah. And, and they're not going to find that on a PowerPoint and they're not going to find that in these different things. But I was actually working with a few schools prior to stepping out where we had taken then an hour and a half block in the morning and created an experiential learning block. So the kids oh, were learning cool. gardening and cooking and beekeeping and archery, nice. and they could pick their different passions that the teachers were working around them on and yeah. wrap, wrap that around, but shift from taking that even from just an activity to an experiential learning opportunity where they're able to build reflection within that, critical thinking, yeah. evaluation, peer evaluation, learning. To yeah, that peer, peer learning, I think is so understated. That's how, yeah. like a lot of the learning happens from your peers and sitting in the yeah. same room and they don't all have to be the same age as you. I love our wild schooling group because it's ages four to 14 and yeah. every person in there has something to offer and they listen to each other and they learn from each other. And it's amazing. The four-year-old in that group is so well-spoken. She has learned everything mm -hmm. from the others. Like she's almost the biggest sponge in there. But I feel like the educational system, almost just the adults have to create this environment where they're allowed to learn from each other. And yeah. it's not us talking to them. It's letting them talk and saying, what if, blah, you know, and then they just go and they learn like organically because we're human beings and that's what we do. <laughs> and 
It's so magical to watch, though, and there's no room for that in the public education system. And that's such a disappointing fact of that. It is. And that's why I see, I've learned to see the role of the teacher more of as a gardener than the holder of information. Where it's Mm -hmm. like, we need to create the conditions for these Mm -hmm. children to be able to express themselves, to explore, to share to navigate challenging situations, really climate control, really within yeah. the classroom of how do we create the conditions that allow Absolutely. this kind of learning. That's a up. hard thing to to learn and to it's apply to the Especially and public it's not very measurable. <laughs> like, it's not. Those things are harder to measure and are even the way educators are being trained, it's we're almost stuck in that loop too because the new teachers, even still the new teachers coming in are went through often public education and then the public schooling preparation, the yeah. schooling place is still teaching the siloed subjects and still doing yeah. things. And so it will take serious innovation from within and finding new ways and new metrics to measure. I said this to the bureaucrats often, it's like where we are measuring is where we're going to go and it's where we're going to put our attention. And so if we're measuring standardized math and English scores all the time, then this yeah. will be continued to what we double down on. So as long as we do that, but what if it's, we were having regular gatherings where the public could come in, the parents could come in, the public could come in and see the products and be that the entrepreneurial things and literally buy the products that the kids made or see the ways that they had done environmental initiatives. We started creating an aquaponics system in one of the schools and a 60 by 30 foot geothermal greenhouse at another that then fed the cafeteria and fed the community and it was all lead and grown by the kids and so that's well, awesome. these are measurable these are measurable and observable things yeah. to document learning so it's not yeah. the absence of something tangible to be able to do it's just yeah shift away parents also need to shift that way because yeah. even at the parental level we still obsess with grades and test scores and all of these things. And to to what degree? I mean, you could have a kid in one class and a kid in the other class. And if that same child was with a different teacher, they could have a totally different grade. What does that tell us? Yeah. Right. No, absolutely. There has to be some public pressure as well uh, around, around that. And, you know, for many, it's just been, well, I'll just do it. We're going to do it ourselves because this thing is moving too slow. And Mm -hmm. so I do have hope for the public system, but I'm not as hopeful as a couple of years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm not either. I mean, I'm one of those that removed us from the system. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what the most compelling argument to me though was in all my like homeschooling groups and forums, it's a lot of school teachers. And once they have their kids, they're like, I'm not putting my kid through that. That's a traumatizing system, you know? Right. So a lot of the homeschool parents are previous teachers that are just like, nope. I'm like, if you're educated in teaching children and your response is, this is not how you do it, we should be hearing that. Like, you're the one who should know, but the power is not in the teachers. It's not ever given to the teachers who have the knowledge and the know-how and the passion to help a kid, Mm -hmm. but they don't have the control to. And it's unfortunate. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. I just, uh, that's why I removed myself from it. So yeah. it just didn't feel right every turn. Yeah. Um, 
I think it's I think it's very courageous and a, a beautiful move for you. When I have children, I, I will be homeschooling, unschooling them as but well. Or, that a lot of it, people don't have. Like it, that's it, the, the sad part yeah. is the people who can't do it, they're just stuck it further down the road. You know, they're in the system. Education is one of those foundational things about a civilization that we should be prioritizing that and healthcare. Healthcare you know, also. Those are the ones that aren't getting any priority. That's right. That's right. And I found too that both of those are excellent examples that we should be, if we want to solve the problems, we should be talking to the people who are facing the challenges and developing yeah. solutions from those places. And where educators are seen more as a problem if they speak up and share these things than a potential part of that solution, same within healthcare. Let's talk to the people who are facing the mental illnesses or the addictions. Yeah. Find out how we can create wraparound services so that we can avoid prison or so that we can avoid all of these excessive costs that are going to hit us down the road. I am seeing these dictates come from bureaucrats out of a centralized office from experts. And so yeah. what I'm teaching with my kids in a little place in a rural school in New Brunswick is coming from a city that has no idea what the lifestyle yeah. of these children is that I'm in front of. And so to yeah. pretend like that's okay is a really interesting See, situation. I, like, I, I feel like that was another us versus them. Like we can't just say it's bureaucrats, you know, elsewhere, even though we all kind of know that people are making decisions that don't understand the situation and that's not right. But how do we impact that? And that's where that's all driven by money. Money is the common value system that we all hold. We all know. And how do you change the value system where it's more on outcomes or more on livability or more on like happiness? Cause that's not measurable. That's not a measurable outcome, but I would take my life any day. And like, frankly, I make like poverty style wages by today's standards, but I don't have expenses. Yeah. So I'm okay with that. And I would take this every chance I could based on the happiness this life provides me over that one. If I'm making a million dollars a year and I am just going disconnected from my family unit, like, sure, I look good on paper. You know, when I bought that big house, I looked good on paper. I was unhappy. And now I'm a happy path. How do we change the value metrics? I feel like that would solve a lot of problems. but it's kind of capitalism, you know? And yeah. that's not the only way to live. Uh, right. But I don't know. It, I, I don't think that's changeable. Well, there's ways. I mean, if you're looking at that big picture and to, to go back, I don't use bureaucrats and the dictates that they offer as this idea to other, because I've worked with many people at the departmental level and at, at districts yeah. who are doing wonderful things and truly yeah. are. And I have seen change happen and I've seen shifts start to go uh, where I see sometimes is like this lack of integrity or follow through. And again, these are big systems and they take yeah. a lot of time to shift and bureaucracy. And it's it, not the right answer. Like, right. Yeah. Cause like when you look at a power system, you know, many solar arrays, many sources of power is stable, but then when you have the one power source that freezes right. and everybody's out, that's not a good system. Food security, little gardens is better than monocrops. We see this over and over again, but we don't like, like we know it. We can step back, we can look at it and say, this is the problem, but we don't fix it. Yeah. 
I think it applies to education too. It does. It does. And that's where I've been coming back to is decentralization is really where people in their community know what's best for their community. Yeah. And how, I think it's a wonderful question to ask, how do we empower those in the community to be the leaders of the change that they want to see? And how do we bring these resources and the opportunities to those people in those communities to make decisions, to lead their way? That's a wonderful place to go with, because like you said, there's nature. Let Look at her. When she is diverse, she's resilient. I like that. Right. How how do we create human systems that are aligned with the way that we are supposed to live on this planet? Like, like maybe scalable, but not mono. Like, right, right. And so, what I like traditionally, we have a pyramid in education. I think you could take this for many aspects of the big structures that we live in. Like, you would have at the pyramid would be more of a triangle. So, at the bottom would be the schools, all the various schools. Yeah. And then you'd have the, the districts, which would be a bit more centralized. And then the central department of the state yeah. or the province or whatever. And th- so these guys make the dictates. These guys provide the supports and these guys do what it's told. We should flip that on its head and let's empower the local areas to be able to find out what their needs are, what their vision is, all held under, under these loose aspirations and these values that we all Want to create some collective and shared value. Yeah. And then how do the districts and the departments actually gather the resources to empower these local yeah. communities? Because it's going to be damn near impossible to change these things if we want to do the mono, the large scale. Yeah. We can't keep the same try, systems. Think of turning the Titanic versus turning these little sailboats, right? Right. So if we had a bunch of little sailboats, as you said, and that diversity and the resiliency, right. man, then we've got a ability to mobilize and the ability to shift on a dime and respond. Because even if there's a challenge in our situation, well, we can react to that in a quicker fashion if we're doing it at that local level, at that more direct place versus this big, it's easy to have oversight and it's harder to move fast when we're trying to centralize and do these big monoliths, be it in food or education or healthcare, whatever. (laughs) Which are also all weaved together. They and food and healthcare and they totally do. Yeah, it's wild. And talking about capitalism, I think there's even ways to move beyond capitalism. Have you heard of the Gross National Happiness Index? I have. That's a brilliant way to start moving it in, like without rejecting capitalism entirely and heading towards communism. Yeah, I mean. What if GDP was no longer our measure of wealth? Mm-hmm. So the amount of product we're creating and exchanging mm-hmm. is no longer the vision that we say, well, our economy is healthy, but it doesn't matter how educated we are. It doesn't matter how yeah. healthy our population right. is or how many people are falling through the cracks and living on the streets or unable to put food yeah. on their plate. What matters is how much product we're creating. And that's our vision. So if all right. of a sudden you see a country like Bhutan. How much happiness are we creating? Yeah. yeah. How much time do you spend with your families? Yeah. How much time do you have for yourself? Are you exercising? Do you have access yeah. to good foods? Do you have enough money to live with your life? Yeah. That's that you can still be capitalistic and yep. shift yeah. what you value. The and value metric. Yeah. The value metric. Start valuing happiness over money. Yes. But that's a hard sell. <laughs> you know, people <laughs> know the money want to keep it that way. And yes. It's interesting, but we can do it on our own. And, yeah. and I feel like our family is a great example of that. And we will continue. 
not to pat myself on the back, but oh my gosh, I live such a good life. And it's not all great, but I have the mental space to handle the parts that aren't great. When life throws me a curveball, I'm able to respond. It's not just going to decimate the next month of my life. And that's such a privilege to get to live that way. But we can all make choices that get us closer to an, a, a point, a lifestyle that is manageable in that way. But a lot of times it does take stepping off the path where it feels right, you know? I think everyone has something in their world where it's just like, this doesn't feel right. Right. And you don't have to change it like overnight or anything, but you could explore a different option. Like mine focused around buildings because that's personally, like I got interested in architecture in fourth grade. That's when I started telling people I'm going to be an architect. No way. Because I see a lot of potential to change the world through our buildings that we use that can start at home, you know? And in my case, it very much did. And then it kind of stopped because <laughs> boom. But there's systems set in place that keep us on this wheel and it's not getting us anywhere. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. if everyone could just listen to that gut feeling and diverge where it's yeah. appropriate for their life, because there's not a silver bullet. It's not the same for everyone. That's right. uh, but following that intuition that we have, accumulated through our life we get tasked we get all the situations that occur to us over time and they tell us to diverge at certain points and it's all different you know i think that's an important step in the right direction to changing the education paradigm changing our food system and food security and changing all of these things that are problems for us as the human animal that's right we just need to decentralize our entire life and become individuals yeah. Yeah. And not individuals in the sense of that American dream. Everybody's got the no. ladder in their own lung. Not that same. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not that, that empowered, empowered individuals. I, I yeah. been coming back to that so much, Macy. And I can say that like just talking to you and listening to your story, I feel a fire in my heart and I feel okay. like passion. And it, it's just reminds me. I'm talking to you and about education. Like it's, yeah. yeah, it's just such a great discussion. It is. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And I, I get lit up. And I think that is how we change the world. And yeah. the, these kind of conversations are not to be overlooked. And they're all around us when we're really yeah. in our state of flow, in our state of like, I'm not trying to prove to anybody how beautiful my life is. I'm just celebrating yeah. it genuinely. Yeah. And when that starts to come, like I've been exploring this term around this notion of decentralization called parallel structures. And yeah. Talked about by a man named Vaclav Havel and the Buckminster Fuller as well, where they were, you know, Vaclav Havel was on Czech Republic under the Soviet rule. And so they were just oppressed and oppressed and oppressed yeah. by a massive centralized force yeah. who was not very ethical in, in how they went about sure. things. And so they created alternative life rafts. So instead of continuing to rearrange furniture on the Titanic and trying to get by under the big weight of this structure, they actually took all of the furniture and started to make life rafts. And these life rafts were so good that people could come off and jump off of that and have a place that they could turn to when they yeah. felt that, when they felt the courage within them to listen to that whisper, when they yeah. knew that as that's growing, as that's growing, I think a lot of people are there and they're just overwhelmed and not sure yeah. where to turn, right? Yeah. And so now that, that's an opportunity to, in 
in seeing somebody like you who created a lifestyle like that, where you have that freedom, where you have these things, yeah. that speaks to somebody. It's I think that's oh, a really good way to possible. say it too, because you don't have to do the jump all at once. So that might backfire on you, but you might be feeling a push somewhere. And so you start laying the foundation so that when opportunity is just right, you ease over there. You know, mm-hmm. I think my whole life I had been laying the foundation of exactly where I live now. Like <laughs> my brothers used to make butter because I have a bedroom and I'd live in the closet. And then I like stuff like a mini bar kitchen. I'm like eight years old and i begged my parents for a, a mini fridge and they're like no we'd never see you again <laughs> but I like made an apartment out of my bedroom and so I kind of knew it was gonna be okay like you don't need a lot to shelter and that foundation moved on until life got really hard and then I was like I'm pretty sure I could do this I thought it'd be hard to live in a small house just as a single lady but I'm pretty sure I can do it. I can commit to two years. And so my goal was like one year worth of rent payments. I'd build this house and I'd live in it for two years. So it was the net positive experience financially because of that value metric. Got to assign it. Got to make it make sense. Um, and then I did it and it was so easy. And I feel like life set me up for that, you know? So that wasn't a hard transition for me. And everybody's got these experiences in their life that set them up in some way finding it and listening to it and being brave enough to diverge that way, I think is an important mm-hmm. life skill for surviving the future and going forward. But it's different for everybody. There's plenty of people who take $100,000, buy a tiny house and hate it. But maybe their lives never set them up for that fact. Maybe it was sold, an idea sold to them and they thought it'd be wonderful, but it wasn't because that wasn't their life's calling. It's I love like that. Listening to that gut feeling and that intuition that we all have developed through negative and positive life experiences. They all offer us insight that we can carry forward. Education is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. The collapse of 2008 in my field totally was the push I needed to step forward onto my authentic path. Mm. And I don't know what it's going to take for everybody and some people are doing great in this system right now and maybe that's their path you know but if it's not working then you gotta start listening to those feelings within yourself yeah and i think more and more people are feeling that from be it environmental stuff be it people who disagreed with the policies the last few years like whatever it is there's people who are trying to reclaim their power in different ways and to explore what that looks like and i think in addition to the amazing aspects of what you said about that path of personal transformation and empowerment is being able to ask for help by the people that we're yeah. inspired by, right? Yeah. Vulnerable enough to put ourselves out there and be like, hey, listen to this conversation with you. Or I saw what yeah. you're doing and it's, I just love to know how you did that little piece, right? And yeah. being able to put ourselves out there to ask for help. You know what? Yeah. That is my favorite part of every day. I- uh-huh fairly regularly get an email from somebody who's like, I'm so sorry to take your time, but I had this question. Like, you are my favorite person and you made my day. I love helping people. That's what fills my bucket. And mm-hmm. I've come to realize it's that way for a lot of people. Yeah. Do not hesitate to reach out to anyone. I mean, the words they're going to say is, oh, no, or nothing. Yeah. But it's amazing how many people out in the world just want to help other people. And that's just what they want to do. It's the truth. And I think that's actually 
so much of the reality of the world. We've just wrapped it in dollar figures and like we've, mm-hmm. we've adopted a, a scarcity perception of the world where if it can't be measured, it doesn't exist yeah. and it can all be put into to parts and pieces. And so we get stuck on this wheel and we've internalized this idea that less, more for you means less for me. Somewhere yeah. within us, we yeah. know it's not true because it's just not the state of reality. And so I've come to believe, like truly, I believe that everybody genuinely cares and wants yeah. me of service. Yes, absolutely. Even the worst people I've met will bend over backwards if they can, but yeah. they will help. It's, I think it's another condition of being human, that community builder, herd builder, and that's, that's how you do it. And I don't know. It's a joy to help people, but it's also the greatest privilege that I have been helped along my journey. I have reached out so many times to so many people. Sometimes it didn't go anywhere. Other times it changed my life. So mm-hmm. it's a joy from both sides to get that and just that human connection. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, we're hardwired for that. We're yeah. hardwired for connection and belonging and, and to feel authenticity. And so yeah. to, to, to live in balance with both of those things is tricky, but it's a life worth living. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Those are the fun parts of the day. The rest is just things you do. Like <laughs> Totally. So speaking of things you do, I'm curious about your experience from transitioning from living in a tiny home on your own to living in a tiny home with one person to living in a tiny home with a family. Yeah. Well, we also have two cats and a dog and our dog is a great day. (laughs) (laughs) We had doubts about every single step. And I mean, we've never been pigeonholed into this decision. This is the choice we make every day. If it's not working, we're going to change it. And actually on that two years, our goal now, and said it, I've said two years a lot of times in my life. I actually mean like our goal is in two years to have our other house built. So I bought this property three years ago. And part of the goal was to, my partner is also an architect. We're getting itchy for another project. <laughs> and our kids are growing and I want my kids to have their own bedroom when they're a teenager. So we're starting to design up. It's about a six to 800 square foot house. I want it to be a passive house. So it conditions itself. So in two years, we're going to roll on to that. But no, every step of the way, we've been like, will this work? You know? So I lived in it first. I paid off all my debt. So I became debt free. And then James moved in and paid off all his debt and he became debt free. And then we were pregnant with Hazel. We're like, this is going to work, maybe. I'm not sure, you know? And we ended up, because we just had the one sleeping loft. And then I was like, yeah, but as it got closer, co-sleeping felt like more important than giving her own room. And then if we changed, if we went to another house, I'd probably have to get a job and I'd miss out on, you know, like, if we just could stay here for another six months, we'll have that. And I could bond with the baby. And then the baby came and it wasn't hard. I just, it naturally flowed. And so we're like, okay, we're going to have another baby. Cause I wanted, we both wanted to, well, initially I didn't want any, he wanted <laughs> to. <laughs> and if I'm going to have one, I'm going to have two. So we got miles and it became important at that point that we had two different napping areas, like a door that could close so that. Mm. The nap schedules of a newborn and a two-year-old are way different. 
So I wanted a room when Miles came along and it became Hazel's room at the back. So I just enclosed my patio on my house and it was a kid's room and that was Hazel's room. And then I co-slept with Miles and there's bunk beds in it. So eventually he moved into the bedroom as well. But that's the only time, like, I was nervous when James moved in because I've never quite flowed as easily as I have with another person with James, but we flow pretty well. So it still worked. And then I was scared but confident with Hazel. And then I wanted the room with Miles. And now they're closing in on 10 and they're getting bigger and rambunctious. And so we're kind of like, well, two years is our time and we'll get into another house. Um, We've been saving for it for a few years. So it'll all be cash. We're going to build it ourselves because we like building things. But it's a lot for the project of it too. We're both getting itchy for the next stage. and excited for designing another thing we get to work with it like i really like how we interact with structures as much as i like how we interact with each other um, and making unique spaces that work for the individuals in them because a lot of the buildings are designed for the lowest common denominator everybody gets along with this attribute of a house i like designing a house for the occupant Um, and so we have got a lot of fun ideas for our place Wow. I'm excited to, to stay in the loop on that because I'm actually in the process right now. Next spring, I'll be building a home that I look to make as passive and off grid and working on that. So I'd be curious to. Friends and athletes. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do. Yeah. Very fortunate. And I've been interested in exploring this for quite some time, but, uh, putting it in practice. Yeah. It's an exciting adventure. Yeah. So I'll Perfect. keep on, I'll keep on your design journey and your, totally. <laughs> I've got a question for you. We can cut this section out if you don't want to talk about it, but I'm curious, like how are you still able to, how are you able to nurture a relationship with your partner, James, while living in a tiny home? This is a very common question. It can okay. totally stay in. Let's keep it then. All right. And a sex life. That's what people want to know. About. I want to know both. <laughs> Um, no, uh, kids sleep. Also, privacy is not a thing for people with little kids. Like, that's something you forfeit for a couple of years. Like, they're just always with you. I mean, we have a door. They have a bedroom. There's a door. And so, like, bedtime happens. They go, and James and I make a commitment that we spend an hour after they go to bed talking, watching a show. Don't watch a lot of TV, but a lot of times it's where we get our ideas and we can have an actual discussion that's not interrupted by mommy, daddy, like, da, 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 you know, those are fun too, but you do need to sustain an adult relationship or mm-hmm. you'll go crazy, at least from my perspective. <laughs> by the end of the day, by bedtime, I'm ready for bedtime for them to go to bed so that I can be an adult and have conversations that are kind of more upper level, talking about future plans, talking about Likes, dislikes, you know, when the kids are awake, it's a lot about kids and they don't know how to make it different than that. That's just not in their survival instincts. But no, I, I think it's very important to set aside time to, so that you can have those conversations and that level of emotional intimacy, physical intimacy with your partner. And that comes through routines and schedules and just work it out as you go. But fortunately... My kids are old enough that they have a well-established routine. And eight o'clock, they're in bed. They fall asleep pretty quick. Mm. 
routines are so important with kids. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be like, this was a thing when we were on our road trip, that was like the biggest criticism from people was like, how do you keep a routine? Like the routine doesn't have to be identical. It's like we brush our teeth at this time. It might be in a national park or it might be in your bedroom, you know, but the routine is the brush your teeth. And bedtime is the, it's the action. It's not the location. No, you work the flow though. And it's an open dialogue. If it's not working for one of us, we can usually tell like mm -hmm. being in close proximity. We're pretty good at reading each other's moods. There's no real room to like slam a door and storm off and get better on your own. We have to work together to make lights happen successfully. And that's, that's a benefit, not a drawback of tiny house living. Uh, it's made us very in tune with each other. Even my youngest son can pinpoint every emotion he's having. And he will say, I just need a minute to myself. And wow. we give it to him. You know, that's the respect. It's a dialogue though. And it's different for adult relationships and kid relationships and between kids, but you've got to learn how to do those things. And I think it's become more simplified in the tiny house that we know when one of us is missing out on some sort of dialogue and we, we fix it, we adapt. Uh, I love that. I love that. And I think it's those unhad dialogues, those places where we swallow it is where it can lead to trauma yeah. and these deep yeah. wounds that, that we leave. So I love, I love that as I've not yeah. really thought about that in the sense of conversation, but I think that's I just think beautiful. like one of the biggest benefits of the tiny house lifestyle is the forced interactions and forced, like you design buildings for forced interactions, like stairwells have a purpose and a structure. Okay. That's where people pass and they say things like hello and people find happiness. You can diagram the effects of a building design on its occupants. And a tiny house, I feel, is exactly what families need, especially while the kids are young. It forces family bonding. And it's not always easy. There's hard parts, you know, but it forces you through them. You can't avoid it. Because I think mm. where we get in trouble is when we say, this is hard. I'm not going to do that. You can't do that. You got to work it out. And I think that's what makes a stronger family. I don't have a great relationship with my parents. I grew up in a 5,000 square foot house and I was allowed to not engage. And I think they liked it that way. And I think that my tiny house is definitely a response to that. I mean, it's tied. There's a twisted ball of trauma there that I responded <laughs> But I don't have any fear at this point that my kids are going to hate me when they grow up. I feel like they genuinely enjoy our companionship because it's based on mutual respect. And when they draw a boundary and say, I need a minute, I give it to them. And that's important. It's not a kid, like you, I'm your parent, you listen to me. It's like, we're both inhabiting this space. We need to make sure everybody's happy. What do you need? Mm. And then we respond. I think that's the biggest part right there of tiny house living. And just, wow. Yeah. I love that. I've, it's not something I've thought about. And I just yeah. think it's fantastic. And an, another piece that has me excited. I was, my partner and I were talking about builds and small stuff today, like the house. And it's like, geez, we concern with the sex life and all of these things. It's like, how do you manage that? And then also just creating these healthy dynamics in that space. But really yeah. that it's refreshing and exciting yeah. to well, hear you talk about that. And how do teenagers manage it in a car? You know, like there's no, there's no way. <laughs> so, like, That's true. Uh, I found some pretty small spaces. It's not a problem. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Now it's a valid concern, and it's probably the most common question mm-hmm. after the toilet. So there's a lot what of toilets composting toilets. Well, we aren't now legally permitted, so like people use composting toilets because they're mobile, mm-hmm. and they're mobile as a workaround to being um, able to be placed. Because sweaty houses are kind of a legal gray area, so mm-hmm. I got legal placement to have legal placement in my county. I was required to put in a septic, which Eventually, we're building our bigger house up the hill. So I just made it big enough for both. So now I'm tight and I have normal old flush toilets. But I used the compost toilet for nine years and prefer it over a flush toilet. But them's the laws. So I had to yeah. <laughs> change it up. Yeah, the laws have uh, caught up. That's another <laughs> whole silly point. Like, uh, yeah, composting toilets are much better for the earth and for people and yeah. creating ecosystems of bacteria that help us in the long term like the poops gotta stay in the loop like that's a whole thing about uh, keeping the right balance in your ecosystem but we don't do that we flush it down with clean drinking water and send it to a reclamation plant where we just dump a bunch of chemicals into it until we can drink it again and Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. a silly system really but it is too big of a, a bus to to drive to you know it's hard to make changes there Yes, it's very challenging and you're almost seen as wild, you know, an outlier for yeah. for pushing that. But we've got some pretty luxurious options at this point, like with incinerating toilets and all of these yeah. different things. There's some yeah. pretty high-end ways to go about that. Yeah, The use of gray water and yep. recycling things around, it's really quite amazing. I always go back, again, I go back to nature and we've been talking, we talked before about permaculture principles. It's like, mm-hmm. what other animal does not operate in a closed loop. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. My whole life's work is natural building. And like people are fascinated about the tiny house, but the tiny house was a means to an end. Like my interest mm-hmm. has always lied in like the old, like qu- cliff dwellings and natural building clubs, straw bale. Like there is more interesting ways for us to build as human animals. But the one that can be based on money is stick frames. McMansions across, you know, uh, like people try to apply the price per square foot to tiny houses and it doesn't pencil out because they don't include all that extra cheap, empty space that makes it seem inexpensive. They're not. They're inexpensive as a whole because they're little, but they contain all the expensive parts of a house. So you still have all of your kitchen appliances and kitchen finishes and all your bathroom. Like you don't, you just don't get a buffer that with cheap box space to make the price per square foot come down. So people are like, that's too expensive of an option. But my house costs $12,000 and I've lived in it for 10 years. So I think I'm okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's applying the same old arguments to a different system. It's apples and oranges. They're not the same. You can't compare them on the same scale because the scales were made to make this sound appealing. Yeah. So obviously they don't work here. Yeah. Uh, but and the, value, what are yeah. our values? Do we care? Metrics. Is it the comfort and convenience seem to be the status quo that we've pursued yeah. uh, rather yeah. than living in right relationship, live, having more yeah. time, well, having more financial. You kind of have a different mindset on that now. Like I've yeah. just stayed at my cousin's places. It is not convenient for me to walk across the damn house to get a drink for what? It's a 10 steps. That's true too. I have a different perspective on that now. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's just what we're used to. And 
I don't know. I get a little into the building side of it and how we interact and how that reflects our happiness in the long term and a healthy building. Like the buildings we use are, have so many chemicals in them and they don't have to. It's, it's just like the foods we eat. They have so many chemicals in them to preserve them for longer so they can be shipped further. And houses have materials that need preservatives essentially too. And so we have all these unhealthy materials that we build our house out of. And then we wonder why we're unhealthy, you know, like there's better ways. Yeah. Yeah. But, no, that That's the truth. And I just love how you're doing it. And it's in, instead of needing to go out and tell the world, everybody what they need to do, really saying, how can I do this myself? And I find yeah. I just get the most inspired by the people who are diving in and experimenting and yeah. doing that work for themselves. Cause I, I think it's just such a beautiful journey to be on. And that's what yeah. makes me like, this is a, the sandbox of life. Let's get in, yeah. let's play, let's experience. And I might fail. That's always a fun part too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm going to watch someone fail. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's what life is for. You experience, like you respond to your environment and you go forward with your next best choice. Mm. And I feel like that's not a conscious decision many people are making anymore. What's your next best choice? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the world where we've been promised this idea, especially as things tend to speed up with our technological advances, that we can have everything all the time and yeah. any moment. And that's just not the na it's not reality. It's not it's good for you either. Like it's no. good, but it's not good for you. No, it's an inund inundation information overload, but it also can lead us to not making the right choices because all of a sudden we're going to feel like our plates are overloaded and it's going to yeah. pull us away from making the right choice in the right moment with the right people. Yeah. That's going to be really the sweet spot because inevitably there's trade-offs in life. And so it's where yeah. do we value, where do I want to put my time Yeah, and how can I trade off to having it all is, is the opportunity you're not going to see it when it comes up. You know, there's opportunity costs to right. every decision you make. We see what might come down the pipe, but we don't always see what we're missing out on by choosing that. That's right. And that's the piece to, that's helped me with this essentialist kind of framework where it's helped me bring more attention to that. It's like a, min yeah. a minimalist idea of stuff, but expanded to how we live our lives and really yeah. knowing that there is only a finite amount of time and yeah. Right amount of ability and resources and our where we direct our attention matters. Yeah. Yeah. So where Very do you want to direct our the attention? Most. Yeah, yeah. Most. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Now, I could go on. I think we could have a whole other podcast on building designs. I want to <laughs> sit and pick your brain on tiny home and the architecture. And maybe we could at some point. But uh, for anybody listening and it's inspired by the homes, the unschooling, the homeschooling, what you've been doing your journey and wants to reach out, what would be the best way for them to get in touch, Macy? Well, my email address is midacy at gmail.com. That's the best, most direct way to get a hold of me. And I answer every email I get. I also, I run a Facebook group called Tiny House People on Facebook. There's 50,000 other people in there that are living and building tiny houses. So if wow. that happens to be your realm, that's a good spot to go. Um, and then my Instagram is whatifworkshop.com. And that's where we talk about off-grid living. And it's just our house. I don't post anything crazy on there. 
just our weird experiences and like, well, that didn't work out. (laughs) (laughs) The what if workshop. I love them. What if workshop. I know how it was. Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I'm going to join that group on Facebook for sure and check that out. And I'll make sure to share all of that information in the show notes for listening who wants to check it out. Sounds good. And is there any last, uh, I mean, we've touched on all kinds of things, but is there any last thing you'd like to share with listeners before we sign up? No. (laughs) I wish you well. (laughs) Yeah. I think we, we, touched on some amazing topics today. And like I said, I would genuinely love to circle back and talk more about actually into the tiny home and the building and the design. Yeah, sure. Some of of that. (laughs) (laughs) The inspiration led us somewhere else today. Yeah, it went elsewhere, but that's no, absolutely. No, I'm always happy to talk about really any facet of my life. I don't know where I'm going next, but we like to do things, so... (laughs) Well, you're amazing. I feel a lot of inspiration and I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. It's very nice talking with you. <laughs> you said not though. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. It's nice talking with curious people and the go-getters who are out and doing things and trying and falling flat on their face and <laughs> getting back up yeah. and going again. Yeah. You know, I really, I love to know that people like you are still sticking around in education because I feel like a lot of really important people are disenchanted by it and they're bailing and that's not the way that change is going to happen and that system needs change and i love to hear somebody with your mindset is still in there still doing the thing and talking to the people and it sounds like you're going up the tree and not just fitting in the mold so i love that thank you for doing that (laughs) pleasure pleasure and shout out to all the educators who are diving in the trenches and doing that work too it's it's needed work and how we raise our children will change the world. So yeah, it's such a pleasure, Macy. Yeah. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Stu Murray Podcast. Check out the Stu Murray Podcast available on all streaming platforms and leave a comment or a review. Let me know if this episode resonated with you and what you want to hear more of as we move forward in the future. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next Monday.